Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us a chance to check out some of the recent conversations we've had at JM in the AM. Rabbi Sprecher joined me from the uh, old city of Jerusalem recently. He's got a great website, a lot of articles, videos, great resource material. Go to RabbiSprecher.com, Rabbi S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R.com for information. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Sprecher from the old city of Jerusalem on this edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, with us live via telephone from Israel is Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher. Rabbi Sprecher is Dean of Students and Senior Lecturer at the Diaspora Yeshiva. He is a popular speaker and teacher and a dynamic thinker and writer. He's a student of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rav Gidal Yeshur. Rabbi Sprecher uh, was uh, ordained, got his smicha, Yeshiva Taravadas, Prior to um, uh, the current position, he was a professor of Judaic studies at Turo in New York. In addition to his uh, responsibilities at the Diaspora Yeshiva, Rabbi Sprecher writes a regular column on various Jewish topics. Uh, You can see that in the Jewish press. He lectures regularly at the OU Israel Center in Jerusalem. And today, as he joins us, we're going to point out to our listeners, RabbiSprecher.com. It's spelled S-P-R-E-C. H-E-R.com, RabbiSprecher.com, and there you will find plenty of articles, incredible lectures, an opportunity to see videos, a whole bunch of very interesting uh, material, shiurim, uh, etc. You could sign up with a membership, we'll explain how the whole whole thing works. Uh, All the way from Israel, Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you, Rabbi Nachum. Good morning. Well, good afternoon. It's 3 o'clock in the Holy City. A pleasure to speak with you. I can imagine how beautiful the Holy City looks today. Uh, tell us why you started the RabbiSprecher.com website. I'll tell you, Malcolm, because uh, my yeshiva is located in the Holy Mount Zion, right next to King David's tomb, and Yeshayol says, Yerushalayim. From Mount Zion, the Torah will go out to the whole world. So literally, we are living the prophecy. You certainly are. That's pretty amazing. I never thought of it like that. You're in you're in one of the greatest locations the yeshiva could be in, that's for sure. That's right. Holy Mount Zion. So you've gone ahead and you've taken your articles, your lectures, your videos, and you've put it basically in one, in one place for everybody to find them. What? Am I right? You've taken all your articles, your videos, your lectures, and you put them all in one place, one website for everybody to find them. And the best part, it's free. It's on the house. It's all free, and people should be checking it out. All free. Checking it out on a regular basis. What are some of the topics, what are some of the things that you discuss and you bring to everybody's attention uh, through your uh, presentations? Well, now we're talking about the three weeks, so I have a good lecture, Why God Makes Himself Homeless. Uh, why is there a mitzvah to mourn? Uh, how a rabbi's humility was responsible for the Chorban Beit HaMikdash. All these topics that I don't think other people speak about. So I'm speaking about them now. It's usually, or may a Kohen visit Kei uh, May we visit the Israel Museum idols. You know, a lot of idols in Israel Museums. at kosher. So stuff like that, I have all, but all the Maramakomot. The best part is my website, uh, my webmaster puts the Maramakomot so people can follow what I'm talking about. Wow, pretty amazing. And how regularly do people, uh, are, are people 
how how regularly is it updated that people can see the most recent ones? It's updated every every Sunday and every every Sunday and every Thursday. There's a new uh, lecture video, and every Wednesday there's a new article. So three times a week, if the person signs up, he gives his email absolutely free. He gets by email a notice every Sunday. Every Thursday, a great lecture, current events, and also every Wednesday, a brand new article, also dealing now with the with the with the, with the three weeks. Like I had last week, my article was why the fast will become a feast. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. Rabbi Ephraim Sprechers with us live via telephone. We are recommending that everybody go to the following website, sign up, and enjoy his shiurim, his lectures, all direct from Israel. It's RabbiSprecher.com, Rabbi, S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R.com. Again, that's Rabbi, S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R.com. And as Rabbi Sprecher said, the entire thing is free. Now, what is, explain to everybody the benefit. It's 100% free to uh, establish a username and a password and a login, but explain what the benefit is of doing that. This way, you get notified. Whenever the article is there, whenever the video is there, it's nice and fresh and crisp. My webmaster sends you an, an email that there's a new article, there's a new video, which a person can use in his daily life. And he can use it to give over the Torah, and he doesn't have to quote me. He can use it. I give the Mara Makomot, and you can use them yourself. So there's no waiting. You get an update every Sunday, every Wednesday, and every Thursday. If you just log in and give your email address... Absolutely free. Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher, who's the Dean of Students and Senior Lecturer at the Asprey Yeshivas, with us live via telephone. Check out his website, RabbiSprecher.com. You have a tab on your homepage that says the seven universal laws. It leads to a film. Tell us what that's about. Oh, I made that film in March 2000 together with Wendell Jones. You know Wendell Jones? You ever heard of him? Yeah, that name sounds familiar. The movie Indiana Jones is based on the life of this Wendell Jones. He was a righteous Gentile, and we made this film. It's an amazing film, a 38-minute film, and other people are involved in the film with me there. It's like a Hollywood production where we point out, you don't have to be Jewish to go to heaven. Keep the seven and go to heaven. (laughs) I love it. That's what the film is about. Keep the seven, go to heaven. If you're non-Jewish... You got it made in the shade. We have to keep the 613 to get to heaven. Other religions say, my way or the highway. Judaism says, no. Judaism for Jews and for non-Jews, the Noahide religion, you keep your seven, you'll get to heaven. Now, um, will Jews find that video inspiring? It's done professionally, and I think you'll get a kick out of it. I look much younger than it was March 2000. My beard was not so white as it is now. Now, my question, though, is uh, I understand that non-Jews would certainly benefit and be inspired by it. Would Jews be inspired by the film? Well, if you look in the Rambam, Sefer HaMitzvot, under the mitzvah to love Hashem, the mitzvah to love Hashem, right? We yeah. say it twice today in the Shema. says the Rambam, Sefer HaMitzvot, under that mitzvah, how do you love Hashem? Many ways. One way, says Rambam, by teaching the Noahide religion to non-Jews, we are doing the mitzvah of loving Hashem, because we're sharing Him with the world. So every time you use that film and you influence a non-Jew to become a Noahide, you are doing the mitzvah of Ahavat Hashem. 
according to the Holy Rambam. Right, I understand that. So, you, so, so we can, so we can assume then that when I ask if the film would be inspiring to Jews, the answer is yes. Yes, this way, Jews, if they have a non-Gentile friend, they could show them the film and inspire him to become an Olachite, and the Jew will be mekai in the midst of Ahavat Hashem. Rabbi Sprecher is with us live via telephone from Jerusalem. We are recommending his website where you can see plenty of articles and lectures and videos, The Seven Universal Laws, the film we just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, he's Dean of Students and Senior Lecturer at Diaspora Yeshiva. Here's how you access it. You go to rabbisprecher.com, Rabbi S-P-R, E-C-H-E-R dot com, Rabbi, S-P-R, E-C-H-E-R dot com uh, for all the information. When you uh, when you do the login, when you set up your own login with a username and password, it's absolutely free, but the advantage is you are informed on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, everything that comes out that's brand new, and you have access to everything. Do you have a, uh, do you have a, um, a presence on Facebook as well, Rabbi? Yes, I'm on Facebook as well. All right, so people I'm can... I'm on Facebook as well. So people could like your Facebook page and... Uh, add you as a friend, uh, be in touch with you by, by message, and, uh, and take advantage of all of that. Uh, you know, you mentioned it earlier. I don't want it to be lost on our listeners. What, what is it like being at your location? You mentioned how uh, the, um, uh, the prophecy of our prophets... They seem to be uh, coming true and developing one after the other during this incredible era that we're living in. What's it like being in the location that you're at? You know, I have to pinch myself every morning when I wake up and I walk up the holy mountain. What King David says in Psalm 24, Mi ale bahar Hashem. Why me? Why not my great-grandfather, B'nai Yisachar, the great great Why was I Zoyche? to walk up and teach Torah Bahar Hashem, and my elders say there wasn't. And the Vilna Gaon wasn't, the Rav Kivega wasn't, the Vashemta wasn't. Who am I, Reb Nochum? I have to pinch myself and thank God. The answer is I'm a mental midget, but I'm standing on the shoulder of those giants. They're giants, and I'm a midget. But the Ramban says if you stand on a midget, stands on the shoulder of a giant, he's taller. Yeah. I get that, but you've raised a question that always uh, that always fascinates me, and I don't want to say troubles me, but I always think about it, how we in this generation have the incredible privilege of having what we have, especially in relation to the state and the land of Israel, and the greatest of Torah giants and the greatest of our leaders were denied that. Even the great Moses himself never walked into Eretz Israel. You know, can I tell you a little story of Ari Levine? You heard of him, the great Tzaddik of Jerusalem? Sure. You must have. You heard of him. He had a Jewish garbage collector. This is a true story. His, son, his grandson, Benji, told me the story. Benji Levine lives in, in, in Nachlaot. Yep. He said, he had a Jewish garbage collector. He's, Arya said, Rebit, I envy you. So the garbage collector said, Reb, are you making fun of me? You're the biggest Reb in the world. I'm just a poor garbage collector. It I envy you. What would Moshe Rabbeinu give to be in your shoes to sweep the streets of the holy city? Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have that privilege. And you have the schuss to sweep the street of God's throne room. Moshe didn't have that schuss. I envy you, Rabbiit, Rabbi told him. And he meant it 100% seriously. That's wow. right. Unbelievable. So we have to pinch 
brush ourselves every morning. I do, anyway. How long are you living in Israel? Since 1994. Wow. The years just roll by. Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher is Dean of Students, Senior Lecturer at the Diaspora Yeshiva. You heard where, you heard the location, pretty amazing, in the holy city of Jerusalem. And everybody out there, you have an opportunity to check out his latest articles and lectures and videos, the seven universal Noahide laws, uh, the uh, the film that we just spoke about. He also has a presence on Facebook. You could search for Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher. Here's how you spell it. It's Rabbi S-P-R. E C H E R dot com Rabbi S P R E C H E R dot com. Go to the website, create a login. You'll be uh, in touch on a regular basis with someone who has the incredible privilege of teaching Torah from the most amazing spot on planet Earth. Rabbi Sprecher, we are now bridging between the three weeks and the nine days. Could you? And it's a very sad time of year, obviously. Could you give us a word of inspiration, a an uplifting uh, a thought before we uh, before we conclude our uh, our conversation this morning? Zechariah chapter eight says that Tzolma Revi, that Tzolma Chanishi, that Tzolma Shri, that Tzolma Siriyel Asosa Dolusimcha Lebeis Yehuda. The prophet guaranteed us that these mournful, sad days will become days of joy and Yom Tov. And we're getting there. Lot, lot, we see so many Jews are coming home. So many Balachu with Baruch Hashem, my yeshiva, the, the Asper Shiva. Before there was an Or Sameach, before there was an Eisha Torah, there was the Asper Shiva. And we see how Jews are changing and coming back. And if enough Jews make Aliyah, the Zulagon said, Mashiach will come. If the Jews of the Asper make Aliyah, Mashiach will come. And when Mashiach comes, Echa, in the book of Echa, Yermiyot calls Tisha Bab Amoed. So we have that promise that all of these sad, mournful days will become days of joy and celebration when Mashiach comes. And every Jew that makes Aliyah, according to the Vulagon, brings the Mashiach one step closer. Yidol by Yidol. <laughs> I love it. Tadaraba. Thank you, Nochem. God bless you. Hope to reunite. Hope to reunite with you in the holy city of Jerusalem very, very soon. Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher, everybody, Dean of Students, Senior Lecturer, Diaspora Yeshiva. He has an amazing website with articles, lectures, videos, the movie we spoke about, The Seven Universal Laws. He has a presence on Facebook. Just search Rabbi Ephraim Sprecher. It's spelled as follows, Rabbi S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R.com, Rabbi S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R.com. Check it out. Create a login, username, and password. It's absolutely free, and you'll be uh, in touch on a regular basis with his uh, brilliant articles and material out of the holy city of Jerusalem. And I thank him for the inspiring words. We see more and more how the words of the prophets are being fulfilled as we live on a daily basis in this amazing era. And the 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 prophecy that Rabbi Shprecher spoke about a moment ago of Zechariah, we know that will happen as well. We look forward to all those days being days of days, being days of great celebration, Bezrat Hashem. That was my conversation with Rabbi Shprecher. Go to RabbiSprecher.com, S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R, uh, for more information and to see his incredible website. Uh, Jake Novak of Novak Now here at the Nahum Siegel Network joined me recently. We discussed current events, including the uh, nomination of Judge Kavanaugh.
for the Supreme Court. Jake Novak on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. In the 11 o'clock hour, Novak now with Jake Novak. He is, in fact, our political and economic consultant and commentator and joins us live via telephone on a Monday morning. Jake Novak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you for having me. A pleasure. You know, over Shabbos, so we were having a little bit of fun uh, trying to see if realistically, if things break right and if this president is reelected, if he'll have an opportunity to select four um, four justices on the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I'm looking at it more carefully this morning. Four might be a little bit out of realm, but three is certainly within realm. Do you think so? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, three could happen even if he isn't reelected. Um, wow. You, you have some elderly members of the court. You know, you don't want to be morbid. I don't play Deadpool games, so, so don't accuse me of that. But, right. you know, you have some elderly members of the court, um, and you have some members of the court who may... Uh, want to retire because of those health reasons. There's a lot of possibilities, and, and a lot of, and nobody gambled on certain people who left the court. You know, a few several years ago, no one expected Antonin Scalia to be to pass away, and he did surprisingly. Right. Uh, so things like that can happen, and you know, we're we're all human. Um, you know, Richard Nixon wasn't even president for the full eight years, as we all know, and he and he had a massive number of of, of uh, appointees to the court. Well, so, he had, he had yeah. three. He had three, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's a big number for six years. You know, six years. Yeah, it's really, funny. It, it's six. funny. He, he was in office for less than six. Years. It's so, funny. Yeah. It's correct, right? I I was thinking that. I mean, the last one who did four was Eisenhower. Yeah, but he was a two-term president. And I saw a statistic that was actually I was shocked I didn't know this until today. <laughs> FDR had eight appointments. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you would you know, and and you would think he would have even more, right? Uh, being president for you know for more than twelve years, but you know it, it's very important not to, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about on the show today, not to put too much weight. Uh, not not you know the president's uh, uh, power to uh, to nominate justice is is huge. I'm not saying to underestimate that, right. but to not to people often forget like, well, this president turned the court too far to the right, or this chief justice did that. The courts are very much like the political makeup of the country in that usually they're late to the party. Whatever the court does or what a president does, not so much a president, but the government in general, Congress, is usually way late after the public has made a decision about a particular issue. Uh, in other words, if we take, take slavery as an issue. The abolitionist movement in this country was going on for decades and decades and decades before Congress even took it up. Right. So we shouldn't, you know, when, when we say the court moved the country to the right, that's a mistake. And it's something I want to talk about because my experience as a New Yorker, many, many of viewers know, sorry, listeners know, I didn't grow up here in New York City. I mean, I, I did a, a decent amount of my growing up here, but for my first 10, 11 years I was living in the South. Of the, of the United States, and you know, your first eleven years is like your first fifty years. That's when you get programmed as a human. Right. And I saw something happen in New York. I moved to New York in the high crime days of 1981. Moved to Far Rockaway, Queens, which was really an epicenter of crime in New York City, unfortunately. And it was a real shock for me, coming from a pastoral Southern uh, background. And I saw this city change, and I didn't see it from the cops, and I didn't see it from the politicians, and I didn't see it from the judges. I saw it from the people, and I'm going to talk about a particular case that taught me that lesson, as I saw from the jurors in one very, very famous case in Far Rockway, and then the listeners from that area will know what I'm talking about, that took place in 1981-1982. So it's the people who come first, and we should always remember that before we get too crazy about judicial nominees. Okay, but with that, <laughs> with that in mind, <laughs> yes. yeah, and it's funny because you're saying this as Kennedy's being replaced, yes. uh, you have to admit he did, he 
made a couple of decisions that certainly altered the court's view of the United States of America. And for those who, you know, put a lot of faith in, in him as a Reagan appointee, yeah. you know, you, you could find at least two cases I could think of where he, he was pretty disappointing. Yeah, I, I think, though, however, uh, you know, while he was, he was the swing vote, but that's only relatively so. So, for example, if uh, President Trump uh, nominates a solid conservative and that judge remains solidly conservative, then, then John Roberts will become the swing vote. But that's only in relative terms. Yes, there were a couple of cases where Anthony Kennedy, I, I wouldn't say completely shocked the conservative world. Right, correct. But he was for the most especially part once a we conservative got to, Especially justice. once we got to know him, right. Yes, he was for the most part a conservative justice. I think he was mostly not disappointing in that sense. I mean, compare him to, some, you know, to, to Judge Souter, David Souter, who was one of George H.W. Bush's nominees. Right. He was a much more solid conservative. Right. He was a more solid conservative than Sandra Day O'Connor, who was Reagan's first appointee. Right. So I think... Again, I, I think it's, it's again it's all on relative terms, and I understand why. And I don't think it's inaccurate to say he was the swing vote, but understand that that was still coming from the conservative uh, ballpark. Interesting. Um, Jake Novak's with us. Novak now, of course, um, every Monday, eleven a.m. Eastern Time. Um, what do you think of the what do you think of the automatic reaction that so many in the Jewish community had? I doubt other communities around the world had it that when these uh, boys were trapped in that cave, Israeli technology could likely figure out a way to get them out. Yeah, I mean, at first I was thinking, oh, this is really great, and then I thought, like, well, the Israeli technology actually helped find them. You right. know? So, so they actually already contributed greatly to this effort. Boy, this is really something. I mean, I actually, you know, what I thought you were going to ask is one of the first things I thought of was, what was it, three, four, I guess four summers ago when those Israeli boys were missing for so long, the kidnapped boys, and, of course, their case ended up so tragically. And I think anyone who went through that, even if they were just somebody like me put it, tying, tying a yellow ribbon around a tree or whatever a lot of us were doing, it, it's, just, it's, it's a human story that we're all hoping for. And sure, we're hoping for Israeli technology to play an even bigger role. But like I said, it's already played a huge role because they would not have found them right. in the first place without some Israeli technology. But boy, anyone who remembers that from four summers ago is probably having flashbacks to it on an emotional level. I know I am. Yeah, no question about that. Um... I just found it interesting that there are people, especially, again, in our community, who, like, uh, you know, at this point, you know, just assume that Israel's going to— You know, I jokingly, when when the woman was climbing up the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> I jokingly posted, you know, who's going to call Israel and figure out— and, you know, and, and find out how to get her down, because, you know— <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say, what uh, what synagogue on the Upper West Side is that woman a member of? <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. So, no, uh, no, listen, you know, I- Israeli technology— and, you know, it, it's not just the Jewish Seichel and the Yiddish Cup and all those kinds of things. What's, and, and, by the way, this is a story that's developing in Israel just as we speak right now. The, Israel, over the last 20 years, has gone through this major deregulatory-type push from the top down that has allowed the startup nation to be what it is. You know, when we talk about startup nation, we usually think of, oh, this is, you know, Jewish minds and some of those folks from Russia who got that great engineering education who came to Israel in the late 80s and, and, and helped the tech sector there grow. And that's a big part of it. But another big part of it is that it's exceedingly easy in Israel to start a new company and start a new business. And that is where all growth and innovation comes from. Once you become a major corporation, Nachum, you not only stop being a major employer, by the way. You, you, you don't grow as an employer, I mean. You also really, the innovation stops. You'll, you'll notice when big corporations come up with an innovation, it's because they bought a smaller company, not right. because they came up with it on their own. And Israel is the king of not a lot, you know, it's just not big enough and it doesn't have the manpower to have these huge monolithic com- companies. And we used to bemoan that, like, oh, we wish Israel had a big car company or a big oil company. 
not so fast. It's better to have a, com- a country that keeps growing new country- companies uh, in, the, in a petri dish over and over again. And, that, and, and I say that's a, a developing story in Israel right now because right now you have Prime Minister Netanyahu and his finance minister Moshe Kahlon in a major battle over union power in Israel, which Netanyahu still sees as a major roadblock to continuing smaller companies from growing in Israel and getting up a foothold. And right now the two of them are having a real feud over that. Interesting. Um, so it's better to spread a wider net, let's put it that way, of technology and innovation than to worry about, as you described it, you know, having one or two massive companies that dominate your economy. Yeah. They, it, 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 for example, you have Amazon now. So Amazon right. is still growing tremendously because they're, 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 just, they're taking over a lot of new industries. But at some point, their ability as a hiring agent in this country is going to slow considerably because they just aren't going to be – they're going to be looking for more – uh, what bigger companies do is they look to cut costs. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of it. And, and employment and labor is a big part of that. And why start a new company or, or a new innovation? And, and there's so many great examples of that. You know, so many of the uh, – Apple is a, has, owes a lot of its success to the fact that Xerox wasn't willing to expand and start new things. I mean, we use the mouse. It was really Xerox that, that developed it. But they gave the technology to Apple because eh, they didn't want it. They didn't want it. that wasn't their core business, and they were looking to cut costs, and that wasn't what they wanted to do. I mean, now Xerox is, is a shell of its former self, and look at Apple. So right. things like that are, are important lessons to learn. Interesting. Jake Novak's with us. You can hear Novak now every Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern time, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. All right. So today we have the Supreme Court nominee. Yeah. It's going to happen today at some point, right? Yeah. I mean, the announcement officially at 9 p.m. My, I, I'm not going to. I don't bet on nominees because. Unlike elections and things like that, I have no polls to work with that you know that I can even that I can adjust for. But I will I will be surprised if the name doesn't leak out before 9 p.m. You know the, the right. nominee ends up going to the White House to be at the ceremony. Someone's going to see him or her. So I, I have a feeling. Uh, I feel like 6 p.m. 7 p.m. That name's going to come out. And what type of summer will it be? Will it be a big battle in Congress, or obviously it depends on who the nominee is? Yeah, no, it'll be a big battle no matter what. Uh, as many people have said, he could choose. Moses, he could choose Jesus, depending <laughs> on your religion, uh, and there would be a battle. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for the battle. The Democrats, you know, listen, the Democrats have, have a big problem that not enough people talk about, in my opinion. They've got tons of problems, so do the, the establishment Republicans. But the Democrats' biggest problem that not enough people talk about is, Malcolm, they don't have a leader. They don't have a candidate. Now, right. it's a little early for that. It's okay that they don't have one right away, because 2020 is, is – but I think six or seven months from now, if they still don't have a leading kind of candidate who looks like he, he or she could beat Donald Trump, they've got a problem. So in the absence of a candidate, they have to throw a tantrum. They have to show like they're really, really resisting the president, and they have a major issue on their hands. So they're going to make this nominee about Roe v. Wade. They're going to try to scare people into believing Roe v. Wade will be overturned, which, by the way, no serious legal expert in America believes that will ever happen. Some states might continue to restrict abortion, and that's where the court could play a role. But a nationwide overturning of the abortion laws, whether you like them or not, is, no one really believes that will happen. Mm-hmm. But that's not important. for The, the Democrats have to have fundraise off of that. They need to frighten their, court, their base supporters in, into that. So whoever is chosen, I, you can bet that the Democrats will come out the next day and say, this is a, this is a nominee who will, who will overturn all abortion rights for all women no matter what, and thus we must uh, you know, lie down. They'll, they'll probably even try a standing filibuster in the Senate, which will last as long as they can stand up. Luckily, the average age for a senator is between 90 and died last Tuesday, so they won't <laughs> be able to stand for too long. But, you know, that's what's going to happen. And it'll be, it, it'll be one of those things where it's just kind of a, a shanda. It, it'll be an embarrassing 
uh, sound and fury signifying nothing, because honestly, there's very little they're going to be able to do. I doubt President Trump will choose a nominee that will turn off two Republican senators, and that's really all that, that needs to happen. If, if, if two Republican senators are, if, he can't, if they can't get two Republican senators to vote against the nominee, then it, that's all she wrote. Interesting. Um, uh, two other things. First of all, you mentioned that Democrats have no leader. You know, yeah. yes, yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, uh, uh, the mayor of the city of New York was visiting Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. And, yeah. and already someone speculated a Sanders de Blasio ticket. What do you think of that? Well, there's a large graveyard filled with former and, and current <laughs> New York City mayors who think they're going to be president. Right, that's true. Uh, starting with uh, people, you know, a century ago. Uh, the, the more recent examples are John Lindsay, who was the mayor of New York City in the 1960s, got extremely lucky in both of his elections. He, was, he had two terms as mayor. Just a, 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 an upward, a, a sort of a positive feeling in New York got him reelected despite, you know, a really poor record on his behalf. He came in as a Republican, changed his party to Democrats because he figured he had a better chance against Richard Nixon. You know, Richard Nixon won a huge landslide in 72, but, uh, but in 70 and 71, his poll numbers were way down. He got lucky with a good resurgence of the economy, and people liked the Chinese uh, rapprochement that he made. And, of course, he ran against a, a, very, a totally unelectable George McGovern. Right. But the point, and then you had Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, who couldn't even win a decent number of percentage of votes in Florida, uh, where you would think he would have done well. New York City mayors don't do well. This is one of the reasons why Donald Trump is such an anomaly. You know, a, a big New York type, big New York personality type with a big, thick New York accent, I thought had, would never have a chance to win an election uh, outside of New York. And yet he did that. But I think a big reason why is because he wasn't a politician. And, and we can talk about that in another show for a long time. But New York City mayors who think they can run, not forget about this president, who think they can run for governor successfully right. are out of their minds. It's right. just a different electorate, a different game. And um, if de Blasio tries to run, whether it's with Sanders or anybody else, he's going to be he's going to be embarrassed when he runs in Iowa and comes in ninth out of eight candidates. Right. I mean, that's what's going to happen. So it's um, it's the second best job in America, but you have to realize the Peter Principle will keep you at that level, and that's it. Yeah, uh, never to advance. And you should, by the way, someone should say this to Andrew Cuomo because I would bet he has some uh, sights in the White House. Cuomo's in the same position. I, I almost wish he runs. Right. So that he can go to Iowa and see how unappealing and unpersuasive a person is. By the way, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more of a feeling. Is it just the positive press she's getting that, that, that Nixon's you know, making some headway against him? Is that a completely wrong impression? No, she'll, she'll make some headway. She's not going to win, but she'll get, some, she'll get a higher percentage than some people think. And this will severely undermine Cuomo's presidential aspirations. The reason why is, again, Cuomo is in that office for a couple of reasons. There was a scandal that got him in there. Uh, you know, David Patterson took over for uh, for Elliot Spitzer, but that really it cleared the decks among Democrats who had been running. So Cuomo got to be governor earlier than I think he expected to be, and he and he won on his name. His, the Cuomo name is is popular downstate, and right. it, it won him the office. You see him in personal interactions, and you see the way he talks and the way he looks. He's not the kind of person who makes you happy. He's not the kind of person who makes you want to vote for them. And, I, again, you probably heard me say this. I don't care if you're Einstein or the least educated person in America. We vote in America, and, and people get very upset when I say this because they all believe we're better than this. But we vote based on, our, on an emotional connection we make with a candidate within the first five to ten minutes that we see them. And sometimes they have a chance to reassess that, but that's about it. Now, if you're emotionally well-adjusted, the candidate that your emotions choose also makes sense on the basis of other data and other reasons. But the fact is, we 
vote for personalities in this country, except, except in these midterm type of elections where most of us don't even know who our congressman or senator is. That's a different story. That's when we might vote on an issue like the economy. Right. I would so think. Andrew Cuomo just does not have a persuasive personality. And by the way, neither did Hillary. And that's the biggest reason why Hillary Clinton didn't win. You know, there are a lot of people who believed in a lot of the things she believed in, supposedly. But her voice was like chalk, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard, and they weren't going to vote for this person no matter what party or issue she represented. Right. People just didn't like her. It was, no. it was more than not relating to her. People right. didn't and, like her. And they're her. afraid to say that. You, know, you don't want to go and say, like, well, I don't just like her. You know? So you come up with emails or you come up with a bunch right. of fake reasons. And I don't think that these are phony issues. I'm not saying they're phony issues, but they're not the real reason why you vote or don't vote for somebody. They're, listen, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I promise you there are psychiatrists who have written many, many volumes of this. They've convinced me, speaking of persuasion, that no matter how smart I think I am, and sometimes I don't think I'm so smart, so don't worry about that, but no matter how smart we think we are, it is an emotional thing, just like that, that's the way we choose a wife. And you hope that you're rational enough that the wife or, or spouse that you choose makes sense on a rational basis. But I hope that you don't go to your parents or your friends and say, well, I'm marrying you know, Sheila because she's the most qualified to be my wife. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Jake, I've got to ask you then, and, and this is how I'll wrap up, because people, people in this area in New York will, be, will, will, will have a big question mark uh, in, yeah. the, in their mind if I don't ask you about it. But I'll do it this way because of what we just brought up. Yeah. Uh, why can uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez beat Crowley, but Nixon can't beat Cuomo? Well, she is a much more attractive candidate. Alexandria, she she may not be as poor or as humble and upbringing, you know, having a poor and humble and upbringing as she says she did. She grew up more in Yorktown Heights and, and not so much in the Bronx. But she's a younger candidate. She does not seem like a career politician, although from a from a ideological point of view, she is a career kind of politician. But she absolutely is a more persuasive person. And I warn conservatives and Republicans not to poo-poo her so quickly, because she is a more attractive, in many ways, candidate than anybody else. And that's how we vote, folks. Some people are going to look at her. You know, I can just see now Upper West Side elderly Jewish women looking at her, saying she's a nice-looking girl. I, you know, I love her. You know, if she were Jewish, I'd marry her to my son. I mean, honestly, that's the way people think. I know it sounds. I'm, I'm really not trying to belittle anybody because that is just the way even smart people think. So she's got a lot more persuasive appeal, and I would I would warn people against thinking she's not going to go any further than this. She could. It's very possible she'll crash and burn on her socialist agenda as well, because she may not be able to persuasively present it very well. But if she sticks with her personality and that smile, watch out. So you're not convinced that the 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 desire among the electorate in that district, among the Democrats in that district, was simply, you know, change. They just wanted to have, make a change. Just, you know, they had gotten sick of the old candidate. There's no, there's no possibility that that's all it was. Uh, if so let's put it this way, I think that that election had a lot to do with uh, with uh, with race and with the fact that she's a Latina. But if it had been an older uh, career politician, Latin, Latino man running against Crowley, he wouldn't have won. So let's put it that way. You, yeah, you, you got to have the 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 the, back, the you know the sort of calling card and the resume to win in in in, a, in, a, in, a, in districts like that. But you still have to have a personality, personal look. Now again, I, midterm elections, you have to throw out personality most of the time because a lot of people don't know who their Congress people and certainly the person challenging their congressperson is. Right. But in this case, she got her face in front of the voters in door-to-door type of electioneering, which, by the way, way too many candidates in America have thrown out. You know, we talked in the presidential election about how Hillary didn't even visit states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania or whatever. I know she didn't go to Wisconsin. I I think she also didn't go to Michigan. Right. 
So that's in the presidential election. By the way, even at the local level, there's not enough of that. I can't tell you how many times, even people for like city council or for, you know, here on Long Island where I live in Nassau County for like the Nassau County legislator, they don't actually go door to door anymore. I don't know what they're thinking. I've said this a million times. When Squadron beat Connor down here, it, it was only because he knocked on every door in the district. That's right, and, 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 I think, and, and she did and, that. And you mentioned uh, city council. I, I can cite more than one city council race yeah. in, in our area, that, and in our community, I should be more broad about it, yeah. um, that uh, that was decided only because the candidate took the time and the effort to literally knock on every door. Absolutely. Simple and and it's just so – it's amazing to be that people throw this out. It's one of these it, – it, it's so silly – and it's one of those things that and, – and, you know, Donald Trump went to a lot of – you know, when he went to Detroit and all these other places – actually, I thought he was going to go to Baltimore at the height of the violence there. I think that would have been an even bigger bang for his buck. But showing up – I mean, 90, what does it say? 90 percent of life is showing up. Right. And in the Republican Party especially, there's a major, major bonus for doing that. Jack Kemp, the late Jack Kemp, used to always say, don't fear the voters. And that was his way of saying – uh, doing what he actually did. Jack Kemp was famous for walking through the streets of the roughest neighborhoods in the country. And places like Harlem, they even like Jack Kemp. I mean, you mentioned Jack Kemp to some of the leaders in the community in Harlem. They'll praise him to the skies, even though he was a Reagan Republican, because he came to Harlem, he made a difference there, and, and put his feet on the ground. Boy, I don't know why they don't teach this in, in whatever you know, public policy schools, <laughs> but I'm sure they're not because they're too busy being in their ivory tower. <laughs> Running for office 101, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Jake, you're amazing. Well, listen at 11 o'clock this morning. Thanks so much for all your insight and your commitment. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Jake Novak, for us, he's the host of Novak Now, a great political commentator and economic commentator. Uh, you'll hear him at 11 o'clock this morning, uh, Eastern Time, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Looking forward to that and always look forward to uh, pelt, pelting him with questions and getting his answers here at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with our very own Jake Novak of Novak Now. Coming up next, my conversation with Zale Newman and Rabbi Tanchum Burton on the issue of a brand new book, a book called Life or Death, Uvocharta Bochayim, Facing End-of-Life Issues in the Modern World. Zale Newman, Rabbi Tanchum Burton, together here from JM and the AM on JM Rewind at the Nachum Siegel Network. There's a book out there entitled Uvocharta Bochayim, Life or Death, Facing end-of-life issues in the modern world. Life or death is a much-needed response to society's changing values. In this easy-to-read yet powerful volume, readers will acquire clarity on the Torah's views about end-of-life issues and gain motivation and direction as to what each of us can and should do to save a life. It's a Mosaic of Press release. It's distributed by Feldheim. It's written... Rabbi Tanchum Burton. Rabbi Burton is with us live via telephone. He is a um, he has worked in clinical, educational, and chaplaincy settings for over two decades. He has been a presenter at mental health conferences and training workshops internationally. In addition, he's written Torah curricula on many subjects, which are used by rabbis around the world. Rabbi Tanchum Burton, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. How are you doing? Baruch Hashem. With Rabbi Burton this morning is our good friend, Zael Newman. Reb Zael, of course, is from Toronto, Canada. That's where he's speaking to us from this morning. In addition to his amazing professional life, many of you are familiar with his musical career and the uh, impact he has had over many, many decades in so many venues. But today we talk about his community and his charity, uh, where he has been uh, such a, uh, a stalwart member 
uh, and force for so many years. He's worked with numerous charitable projects for needy people on behalf of uh, widows, orphans, handicapped children, the sick, and the needy in Toronto and beyond. He's a member of Toronto's Beaker Holland, the Jewish Volunteer Services, where he serves Jewish patients at Sunnybrook and other medical facilities. His newest book, A Light in the Dark, a guide to the traditional Jewish practice of visiting the sick, is based on his many years of experience in the field. Reb Zale, welcome to JM in the AM. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Nachum. You're such a mitzvah man. Thank you so much for doing this <laughs> and uh, for what you've been doing for so many years. It's just great. I, really. I appreciate that. You, you took me back with that statement. Thank you, Reb Zale. Uh, Rabbi Burton, uh, it, it might be an unusual way to start this conversation, but one might think that a a book that deals with end-of-life issues in the modern world would be one of the thickest volumes of the day, and yet you take care of this entire topic in just over 50 pages. Why? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we take care of the entire topic, all of its halakhic intricacies and, and, and nuances in 50 pages. I think what we're trying to accomplish in those 50 pages is to raise consciousness about growing trends uh, with regard to uh, right to die, Torah values vis-a-vis that, what what are current medical practices? What are, what are the growing trends in uh, the contemporary healthcare world, and how that either either uh, com- conflicts with our values or might uphold our values? What to do in situations where we find ourselves on a collision course with the values of the contemporary world? How to advocate um, and how to take the case further? That's really what we're doing in these fifty pages. Uh, Reb Zale, I mean, I would guess, and again, we, we spoke about this literally for seconds before this morning's conversation, but I would guess it was your um, uh, frequency in hospitals being up close and personal with a lot of these situations, which started to alarm you in terms of the way the Jewish community began to drift towards society's view of some of these things. Does that sort of describe the way this project began? Yes, I think it's perfect. If those of us who are in Beaker Cullen, who are in hospitals or hospital situations almost every day, we found two things. One is changes in law, and Canada is one of the countries where the family no longer has the choice whether they want to prolong life or so-called pull the plug. The law gives it to doctors, and... um, the second thing is there's a change in values, and I found that our from community got caught up in the change in values because they're just they're not well educated in this area. So, as an example, uh, in palliative care and in Toronto, they just changed the definition a few months ago from someone who is to have six months left to live. Now it's someone with a year left to live they will not officially treat the patient for anything but pain. So if a person had a mysa, yena mysa, they have cancer, and they said, well, you only have a year left to live, we're not giving you any more cancer medicine, we'll just give you pain and their medicine, and they're literally killing people, literally. And we've had uh, four court cases here in Toronto, which two sided with the patient, and the most two recent ones sided 
uh, with the doctor against the patient, and they pulled the plug against the patient's will. Zale, you and I both know people that were given a year to live who lived God knows how much longer than that. So um, uh, we have a number of stories from our experience that uh, Rabbi Burton has put into this book. Uh, just a fast story, but before I begin, I just want to tell you what happened less than a half hour ago in the base of Medrash where I learn in the morning. There's a cancer doctor, very senior, and he told me that he will no longer take primary care responsibility for a patient because the law is against Torah and he cannot compromise his values. So he will assist another doctor in treating the patient, but he will not take the responsibility anymore because of the law in Canada, which says essentially they are now murdering people and encouraging people to kill their sick and elderly relatives. So one story is this, where uh, a number of months ago, it was a Thursday afternoon, I was called to the hospital, and uh, the woman had a serious illness, a woman about 70, 72 years old, and the doctor, a Jewish doctor, was encouraging the family, let us pull out all the feeding tubes and liquid tubes, let her just leave the world. That would be the greatest chesed that you could do for her, take her out of her pain. In the meantime, I just had a visit. We were laughing and had a deep conversation. And we worked with the family. The family said, no, we will not agree. This is before the new law went in in Toronto. And he said, okay, we'll see what happens. She's not going to make it through the weekend. They had a very beautiful Shabbos in the hospital. On Monday, the hospital kicked her out because they said, look, we will not treat her anymore. She has to go to a different hospital where they have palliative care. She switched to a different hospital, which happens to be the one where I'm, in, I'm involved with Bikr Cholim there. And the doctor there said, you know, she doesn't have much time left, but I'm going to try a new medicine and let's see what happens. To make a long story short, Nachum, two weeks later, she went home. She began to do her art again. She's a very fine artist. She began to get so strong, she played tennis again. And for the next year, while being treated, she had the wedding of two Anaklach, and she saw three uh, great-grandchildren born, and her illness did come back, and she left the world about 14 months later, but she had 14 months of unbelievable life, including five big simchas and many beautiful Shabbosim and Yamim Tovim and maybe hundreds of thousands of mitzvahs, and all because the family stood up to the new view that we should uh, terminate life if someone is ill or potentially in pain. And that's why we went to Rabbi Burton to write this book. Absolutely horrifying. Uh, not to sound too selfish, but is it is it close to the same south of the border? What's it like in the U.S.? So I'd like Rabbi well, Burton did a, a good survey. Go ahead, Rabbi Burton. I, I can address t- that, please. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, there are six states right now that uh, where where euthanasia, where physician assisted suicide is legal, um, but besides assisted suicide, there are already book, law, laws on the books. There is a statute in Texas that actually was, uh, was created in, uh, in 1999 and then, uh, and then amended in 2000, 
and 3, if I'm not mistaken, where basically it's Chapter 66 of the Texas Health and Safety Code. I'm reading now from a, from a law blog of an attending physician disagrees with a surrogate over a life and death treatment decision. There must be an ethics committee consultation. In a, in a futility case, such as Son Hudson, Son Hudson was a six-month-old who was, whose life was terminated in, 19, in 2005, in which the treatment team is seeking to stop treatment deemed to be non-beneficial. The ethics committee agrees with the team. The hospital will be authorized to discontinue the disputed treatment after they give a 10-day delay for, for appeal. But the point is, is that there is precedent now where doctors and hospitals, medical ethics committees, consider a person's case to be what's called medically futile to take unilateral action, even over the objections of the family. You know, so I, people are not aware of these things. I mean, these are these are these are things that happen at the legal level, and very few people are, are thumbing through legal texts and, and 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 keeping their eye on on the developments. So they're not aware that that there's already a structure in place to allow these things to happen until it's basically too late. Uh, this is not a criticism; it's a question. Uh, Ribzale, are there rabbinic groups and organized Jewish organizations that are taking up this cause, that are knocking on the doors in Washington and Ottawa to try to uh, stem the tide, so to speak? We found that for the most part, people are really unaware <laughs> until they're in a circumstance where a doctor walks into their room, they're sitting in intensive care or in a cancer ward, or palliative care ward, and a doctor comes in, uh, usually an intensivist, and says, here's the best thing you can do, or here's what we want to do. And then either they want to stop treatment or pull the plug on a breathing machine, or in the new world, they will actually administer a needle and take the person's life within a few moments. So in uh, Canada, there is not uh, a rabbinic group, and I think that most rabbis are not yet aware of what is happening. Again, a reason that we made this book. I think that families and regular people are not at all aware until it's much too late and then they're so overwhelmed and tired and confused and they're so used to trusting a doctor that uh, they make the wrong halachic decision. In New York, there is a large organization, but in our book, what we would want... uh, people to come out and, and understand is that, A, the Torah believes in life, and B, that they should consult their Rav. And then it is the Rav's job to go to a senior Rav to seek uh, wherever he gets his halachic advice in Toronto and New York and Eretz Yisrael, wherever his experts in Gedolim live. And uh, there are Rabbanim who know, certainly we have in Toronto, let's say Rav Shlomo Miller, Shlita, he knows Halachas is very familiar, but on the ground and in the shuls, people have to be aware that they have to go and ask as opposed to listen. But um, there isn't uh, any formal organization here at all. Uh, with us live via telephone, both Rabbi Zael Newman and Rabbi Tanchum Burton. Rabbi Burton wrote the book of Archart Rabachayim, Life or Death of Archart Rabachayim, Facing End of Life Issues in the Modern World. And by the way, Rabbi, Rabbi Burton, we should point out uh, for those people that don't um, that don't fully understand all of this, and I under- and I understand that there are many out there who don't. Um, w- I mean, we we sh- we should not. 
how do I put this? We, we should not um, uh, assume that great rabbinic decisors do not take everything into account when making these decisions. I mean, th- th- there are cases, and obviously there are halachic uh, situations, uh, where where there are very, very sensitive issues, and, you know, one may decide, you know, with the family's wishes, so to speak, one may decide against the family's wishes, but, but we should make it clear that it's not just a, a black and white, you know, what does the halacha say issue, the, the rabbi always takes into consideration everything, the entire picture when making that decision. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to make that clear because I, I, there are people who fear going to a rabbi sometimes because they, they think that he won't have the sympathy or the, the mercy that they are so seeking for their relative. And, and I think we have to make it clear that these decisions by these rabbis, like the ones Rebzeel mentioned, are done specifically with that in mind. They, they really do understand personally what the people are going through. They just very often, because we choose life, must decide to you know to, to carry on, so to speak. That's true, and I think, and there are even cases, frankly, uh, in halacha, where continuation of treatment is not always necessitated. But I think that, like like I said before, this this fifty page book is not meant to be a comprehensive guide to the halacha right. so that a person can read this book and paskin out of it. Right. What, it's, what it's there to do is to reorient people to understanding what is the basic ethos in Judaism regarding these issues, that we favor life, that life is sacred, it's not just important, it's something that Hashem values, and that we have to do everything we can to save it. And that's the basic orientation that we need to have. The details, obviously, we need to consult Rabbanim, who are expert in these areas, and they will have certainly considered all of the various different nuances and intricacies of the situation. And they're also able, but, to, able to determine when someone is, as we would say in halacha, a goseis, you know, someone who's clearly dying, so to speak, or in the last moments or hours or, or days of their life, uh, pain and suffering, which is such a major concern for family members. Again, all of this is considered. Uh, but very often, if you would speak to the, and Zale, you could, I'm sure you could address this. If you would speak to the patient and speak to them about their pain and suffering, they would rather, in so many cases, go continue through the pain as long as they get to see their family members and participate in the things you mentioned earlier. And they 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 they, they would continue with all the suffering God is giving them. If they're able to to do a few more mitzvahs, you know, each and every day that they live, I'm sure you would confirm that for us. I, I am never ceased to be amazed how much someone fights for life, even when they're first a shchiv meira, they're they're you know on, on death's doorstep, and then finally a goseis, even in their last moments. And I have my own experience where I said the final tefillahs with someone. And then they sat up and they smiled and they kept going for two more weeks. They yeah. got chizuk from the process. And others where we said the tefillahs and they smiled peacefully and we sang final songs in their room, but they left the world in a state of closeness to Hashem, you know, with the word Shema Yisrael on their lips. And then, of course, there are other times where someone's been on a breathing machine for a while, and that's why we have the Rabbanim to guide us as to what the doctor should do 
In the book, Rabbi Burton puts many stories as well, real-life stories that we took off the floors of the hospitals here in Toronto, but there'll be the same stories in Eretz Yisrael and in New York and in Miami and in Los Angeles and everywhere else. Yeah. But it's just important to know that in right now in society, we're in a liberal Democrat society which says the individual can decide whatever feels right they should do. And that is exactly the opposite of the Torah view. And the Torah takes everything into consideration. And we have our Gedolim who are expert in this area. And we just want to awaken consciousness as to what's going on. There is a change in our society. There is a change in hospitals and medical schools in on palliative care wards and cancer wards. There's a change, and we need to be aware of it if we're going to take care of our relatives, ourselves, and our community. And by the way, you know, for 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 younger people out there who may not have as much experience at this or haven't been around as long, who today, you know, look at physician-assisted suicide the way the general media does as as you know not such a bad thing. Imagine, do you remember? You don't have to imagine. Do you remember twenty twenty-five years ago what the American attitude was toward physician-assisted suicide? It, it, it was looking at those physicians as they were completely crazy, as they were a, an anathema, and and just completely foreign to the re, you know to the genuine medical field. And today, I don't want to say it's become the norm, but it's certainly moving closer to it. Unfortunately, Nachum, I think it now is the norm in Western society. We see it in Scandinavian countries, in European countries, in England. A year ago, Pesach, a from family had an 18-year-old daughter, and again went to court, lost the court case, just like what happened here in Toronto uh, this year. And uh, the hospital chose to end the woman's life uh, because the court said that she is over 18. She's no longer in the ward and the guardianship of the parents. She belongs to herself now. She's an adult, so we'll decide, and we know what's better. They just had another case very recently in England, uh, not with a Jewish family, but another court case. And we've uh, we had a from two from cases in courts this year in Toronto, and um, it's now become a serious issue because society's feelings have changed to where it's a chesed now to end the life right. of either a sick person or an elderly person. They actually define it as over eighty. And uh, they view not only the chesed to the person, but a chesed to society will have more resources to give to other people, diametrically opposed to the high value of life and the fact that life is in Hashem's hands, which are the Torah's view. And that's what Rabbi Burton brings in a book, that anyone could sit in a hospital and read this in two hours. Anyone could sit uh, up at the bungalow during the nine days and sit and read this, in, in a couple of hours and get a very uh, important but quick appreciation of the Torah's viewpoint. I assume it's available everywhere. Ribzale, what should people do? Go to the Feldheim website, or is that the easiest way to do it? Well, <laughs> if you're in Canada, it's probably best to go to the Feldheim website. In America, I assume, in, in New York, you know, every bookstore will have it, and the Feldheim website. And... Um, I think, in my opinion, every rub should read this. Every uh, family with an elderly parent should read it. And sooner or later, every yid has to 
We didn't. We're not. We're not. Have no profit motive to sell this book. That's not why we're doing this. Is just to awaken consciousness to the from community and then to the overall Jewish community, because we'll talk to people that we see in the hospitals and our friends and business associates and give them the Torah viewpoint. And this is really and truly a large pikuach nefesh issue today. One of the biggest issues that people are unaware of, but every day. Hundreds of Yidden are being killed in hospitals in the world today. All right. Um, Rabbi Burton does address when Beaker Cholom becomes Bikuach Nefesh. He does address what I discussed earlier, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, etc. He does discuss ownership of one's life and body. He does discuss the topic of pain and suffering and also the issue of ghost says what to do when someone is clearly dying. It, it, it's a 50-plus page book, everybody. It is it is short, worthwhile, to the point, and as you've been hearing over the last few minutes, it addresses one of the most important issues in 2018 Jewish and general society. The book is called Life or Death, Uvacharta Bachayim, Facing End-of-Life Issues in the Modern World. It's written by Rabbi Tanchum S. Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N. Uh, we suggest you go to the Feldheim website or search for it online. Again, it's called Life or Death or by Tanchum S. Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N. Get it immediately. Make it part of your uh, summer reading and to read up on a very, very important issue. Rabbi Burton, a big yeshikach. I, I I knew it when we got it that this was important, but after today's discussion, now I see how vital this project really is. Kolakavod to you. Thanks for having us, Nahum. Reb Zale. Um, phenomenal. What can I tell you? You're out there always wor- worrying about the uh, uh, the community and its issues and the difficulties that we are facing out there. And what could possibly be more of an issue than uh, than the medical community killing our people and people from other communities as well? Thanks so much for bringing this to our attention. My pleasure, Gitchaydesh, and um, you know, let this be in the a part of the work that we have to do during the nine days is worry about each other. That's right, and. Uh, Someone who had elderly and ill parents, uh, I'm sensitive to the issue, and we just have to save as many lives and bring as much guidance and simcha to the families, knowing that they're doing the right thing is a deep level of simcha, and even in a tough time, it would be mechazik, the yidden, and that's really, in the end, what I would say this book is about. Burton gives chizuk to families, to doctors, to rabbanim, when they're dealing with this very, very tough and difficult life issue. You know, Rabzale, i got to say one more thing. You, you know, because we're, we're close friends, you know that I've had very close relatives who've had very difficult endings, and, um, and, and it is so taxing and difficult with the emergency rooms and the hospitals and constantly you know, making it the, the priority in one's life and in one's family's life uh, to deal with the, with the patients and with the situations that they're in. To add all of this that you just told us about, to add all of this horrifying experience to an already difficult experience, I cannot even imagine it. So whatever chesed we're doing, it's not just for the person, frankly, that, that's being saved, but for the families and relatives of those who, who really need guidance, help, and a hand to be held through this process. So again, call like a vote. Thanks so much for joining us. And Rebzale makes a great point, by the way. The nine days... No more important time of year to really try to solidify our care of one for the other. A good time to read this book. 
Life or Death, Vacharta Bachayim, Facing End-of-Life Issues in the Modern World, by Tanchum Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N, is the author. Go to the Feldheim website or your local Judaica store. That was my conversation with Zael Newman and Rabbi Burton. Thank you so much for tuning in to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up if you keep it right here all day long at the Nachum Siegel Network.